This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. What the heck is stradgrass, you might be wondering? Well, it's bluegrass played on a Stradivarius. And why would you play bluegrass on a Stradivarius? <laughs> well, Tessalark won the opportunity to play the instrument. She was raised on bluegrass and really dove deep into classical music as a young performer. So now she's blending these two styles on her new recording, The Stradgrass Sessions, and she does it with some incredible performers, including Edgar Meyer, Sierra Hull, and Michael Cleveland. And that's what we're going to be hearing about this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, we're here to talk about your Stradgrass Sessions, Tessa Lark. That's kind of a mouthful, actually, Stradgrass Sessions. And you coined the term Stradgrass, so why don't we start off by just having you give us the definition and tell us why this really defines you in, in the work that you do. Yeah, Stradgrass, it actually came up because I was using the ex-Gingold Stradivari violin for four years, which is the violin that, of course, Joseph Gingold owned and used till the end of his life. And now the International Violin Competition of Indianapolis owns it and lets one of the prize winners use it in the four years between each competition. So that was me in 2014 through 18. And um, it's actually my fiance, Michael Therapy when we first were meeting and played together, he plays bass and he was accompanying me on a bluegrass number with my father who plays banjo. And he just kind of quipped in the middle of rehearsal. He said, bluegrass on a strad, stradgrass, and just started to continue using it. And it just morphed into this thing that I started using as a hashtag on social media. And it just felt like it, it was a good word to, to sort of encompass the way I operate in music and my uh, sort of exploration of different Americana styles, but from the classical side of things, which is my primary training. Let's talk about playing bluegrass on a Stradivarius because, well, there was a little bit of controversy around that initially. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about that and your reaction to that, that, well, you know, you shouldn't be playing bluegrass on a Stradivarius. <laughs> yeah, I there was one post recently, um, I think it was on Classical FM or something, and they posted this video of the single from the album that I have with Edgar Meyer, and it's his uh, final movement from his concert duo. And first of all, that music isn't bluegrass. It's very close to classical music. I mean, it's the sounds of Edgar Meyer, really, and the counterpoint there is perfect. And it really, it has an Americana flavor, but it's simply not bluegrass. And that video to boot um, is not me playing on a Strat, <laughs> but it got people all up in arms and, and saying, you know, that ain't bluegrass, which is exactly what everyone said to, you know, Sam Bush when he first started playing bluegrass music and, you know, he, he's done fine. But, um, it's, it's funny. People sometimes say that, oh, fiddlers shouldn't use a Strat. And on, on one hand, I understand that, you know, fiddlers, 
don't need the type of projection that classical soloists do when they're playing over an orchestra. So in that regard, you know, instruments that are super loud and can pack a punch, uh, I would see why, you know, somebody who really needs to play loudly would want to use those instruments. But for any other reason, if it's a beautiful instrument and it makes a beautiful sound with a certain type of music, you know, why not? And it's been such a pleasure to have these amazing relics of history that I've been able to use. And now currently is a Magini from 1600 that I'm using and that I used on this recording. And it just, it makes a mean fiddle too. <laughs> I, I love playing it. And, and I think, you know, this music is, you know, it's not as complex as a lot of classical music, but that doesn't mean it's any lesser than. And so I feel like this music deserves just as beautiful a sound. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of how you leaned into bluegrass music initially. But before we go there, I want to ask you about what it was like for Michael Cleveland to test out a Stradivarius, because I think when the two of you first met, he had never played a Strad. He's known as, you know, he's a world-class fiddler. And so you let him test it out. What did he think when he took that test drive? He loved it. It was so sweet to see him beaming like that. And I was stunned that he had never encountered a Strad before, honestly, because he's such a legend and an amazing player. It sounded so gorgeous. I just ran into him at a conference in New York, the yearly APAP convention and he was there doing a showcase and I saw him in the corner of the room and knew right away who he was just such a distinct man and so I told him I was his biggest fan and I had a strad with me and would he like to try it out and he of course <laughs> just went right to it and he he really got in there in a way that you don't get to hear that often on strads and, and the sound, I think he said, you know, it really growled and he was, he was just really getting into the tone, playing lots of double stops and long notes. You know, he wasn't totally into, I mean, he's known for, he, he has a band named flame keeper. He's known for flaming hot, fast licks, but he really just got drawn into the, the longer, um, tones of, of the instrument. So he, he got it right away and, it sounded really good in his hands. And the two of you somehow managed to record together on these Stradgrass sessions. Tell me about the piece that was chosen and how he was able to arrange it for the two of you to do it together. The tune that we played together is called Lazy Katie. And after we met at that convention in New York City, I was in nearby Louisville. He lives just right outside of that in um, Indiana. And he invited me over to his place and we just kind of jammed for a few hours at his house. And Lazy Katie was one of the tunes that he taught to me and he had just written it at that time. And he wanted to try out a twin fiddle part over the melody. So he taught me the melody and he just found some harmonies right there on the spot. And we just really enjoyed it a lot. And so I asked him later if he'd be willing to record that with me. And then of course, I don't know if you heard, but this pandemic thing <laughs> happened in 2020 and made a lot of things change, but he is really well-versed in recording things on his own at his house. So he laid down the main track and 
played some solos and created a form. I left that up to him since it's his music. And then from there, I recorded in my apartment in New York City over him. And I actually took his harmony part and then developed that a little bit as as it went on. So it's it's all Michael's music. And I added a few, like a note or two. But we have yet to actually perform together, which is really funny to me because it was great to be able to record with him and, and jam. But the only public output we have was made remotely. Still, though, when I think about, you know, you being a young violinist growing up and you had him as an idol, as a fiddler, what was that like? Did you ever imagine you'd actually even just to get get to sit and jam with him? No, it's it's really a dream. All of these collaborators on this disc, you know, I I come off as a fairly chill person, but um, there there are moments when I just cannot hide it, and that was one when I saw Michael Cleveland in New York, and and just had to go over and say hi to him. So the fact that I even got to meet him was amazing to me, and then that he was just so down to record music was incredible and I pinch myself every other day you know when we're texting about silly things on my phone you know and we've we've become friends through all that time but still every now and then I'm like this is Michael Cleveland this is the guy I grew up listening to he's the sound that's informed the fiddle sounds that I love it's absolutely surreal When you were about 11 years old, you started commuting to Cincinnati from your home in um, central Kentucky. And when you would make that commute to go be part of a young string players program, one of the recordings you would listen to featured Edgar Meyer. And this was that folk classical crossover album with Meyer and Yo-Yo Ma and Mark O'Connor. And actually, you you know went off to be at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camp. I mean, there were just all kinds of connections that you had from the time you were really small. And again, I ask you, what was that like to get a chance to uh, make music with Edgar Meyer? And the two of you are featured on this recording as well. That was another one. I was just desperate to play with that guy my whole life. And again, it's not in my nature to really chase someone like that. But for years and years before I actually met him, and I think it was 2019 when we finally played together for the first time, um, anybody who knew Edgar or was going to be seeing him, I'd always just say, Could, would you mind just saying my name? Like even just when you sneeze, just <laughs> a lark. Oh, excuse me. Just so it was sort of, you know, in the air around him. So if the chance ever came up, he'd say, oh, I recognize that name. And so sure enough, um, we were at a music festival together in Sydney, Australia, and I had gotten to know his manager at the time through separate circumstances and she did a solid for me and said I think you'll like playing with this girl and he said I recognize that name (laughs) so uh, we got to play together in in Sydney and it I mean talk about dream come true I mean Edgar's really influenced the way I live in music in every way um, in terms of 
he, he's a composer and I've started composing in recent years, even the tone that he produces from his bass and that he's just ever curious and always growing in any space that he occupies. Um, it, it's all so endlessly inspirational to me, all starting from that CD that I listen to every Saturday. Um, so that one is is really unbelievable. And I got to play a couple of his duos with him. But then the fact that, you know, I gave, uh, sent him an email and asked if he would be willing to do this recording with me. Um, and then a few months went by and suddenly I heard from him and he said, you know, I'll actually be in New York in a couple of weeks. I don't know if you'd be free then. And of course you clear the schedule and, and make it happen. And that was actually in, um, I think it was the end of February, 2020. So that was, it was, you know, there, there weren't any more days left that that could have been an opportunity. And, and we got to do it live together in New York. And I, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm short of words in terms of how this hits me, but it's, it's kind of bizarre, but at the same time, this is music that, you know, of course I can't understand Edgar's music like Edgar, but it's just part of the sound of my soul. It's really, I mean, it's like anybody who grows up with a certain language or different sorts of phrases that their parents use and you start to use the same growing up or the same hand gestures of your mother or whatever that you're unaware of and with Edgar's music it's the exact same kind of thing for me so on one hand it's completely surreal but then when I'm just really in the music and focusing it it makes sense to me at the same time but it's it is a little bit of a shock when I step back for a second and, and think that this lifetime hero of mine is a colleague. Edgar Meyer has praised you for your rhythmic precision. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and why um, it might be something that you have a sense for that not all classical musicians might? What is it about you know you blending the bluegrass and the classical element that helps you to have that rhythmic precision that's required in bluegrass music? Well, that's... Um nice of him to say if he said it I have a long way to go with that and um, I'm learning a lot about improving my time feel and and groove and it's it's honestly a thing that you just don't need to do that much in classical music feel and timing in the classical world is quite different and it's becoming less and less so because of all of the great living composers we have and they're bringing different Americana influences onto classical stages. But on one hand, you know, rubato and that sort of giving and taking of time that you experience in classical music is extremely sophisticated and hard for a folk player to do because they're used to, you know, sticking with a groove or, or a feel. And so the idea of just sort of going with your whim for, for a hot second and then coming right back in could be bizarre. So it's, it's just a different approach. Mm-hmm. 
and it is so much more and I'm only just getting my eyes opened to that sort of thing it's um and it's also a different set of priorities within music it seems to me that in folk music rhythm is the number one priority and it's about like pulse and feeling and groove as opposed to you know rhythms that you find in classical music like fives and sevens and you know more complicated mixtures it's it's about the flow of something and the feel that results from that so it's it's an ongoing process for me so i'm <laughs> i'm even stumbling a little bit trying to to talk about it cuz i've only recently come to understand how much more <laughs> i have to learn on groove I also want to ask you what it is about bluegrass fiddle music that you most enjoy. What what appeals to you the most about playing it? That's a hard one to answer. I mean, part of it is that um, it feels like home when I listen to that music. I mean, smell is supposedly one of the strongest, you know, sensory responses in terms of bringing memories back. But for me, the sound of bluegrass may as well be the smell <laughs> of bluegrass because it launches me back to a really pure time and place every time I listen to it. So it's probably the resulting feeling that is most special to me, but the other part of it is anything about you goes in that music in a way um, and it's folk music and it's designed to be for everybody no matter what level you are as a musician and that's an aspect of the music that I really adore too because it you can take it as you are you know if you are a beginner there's so much to enjoy and if you're a legend and have been playing the music for decades there's still more to unpack but there's a way in at any moment and i think that malleability of approachability is really pretty incredible you have another um I want to say rising star, but I think her star has risen uh, on this recording. Mandolinist Sierra Hall. How did that come to be? Were you friends already, or did your relationship uh, develop out of the Stradgrass sessions? Yeah, it mostly developed through the recording. Um, we have a lot of mutual friends in common, and we overlapped at Celtic Connections Festival in Glasgow, Scotland, um, at the end of January, again, 2020. So all of this was kind of brewing right before the, the lockdown. But yeah, I approached her to see if she would be interested in this recording, and it was in a way, a kind of cold call to her, but I had heard through the vine that she was really interested in 
making some new collaborations with more classically inclined folks. So I had a feeling she might be interested in a project like this. Um, and she was, and I was so stoked. And she um, suggested that we try her tune, uh, Chasing Skies. she would be down to record some of those Bartok violin duos. I thought those would sound just as great with a mandolin playing one of the violin parts instead of two violins and she just learned them so quickly. She doesn't actually um, learn with sheet music. She learns by ear. So I just sent her the parts isolated and then together. And she learned it pretty instantaneously and even added a bunch of her own character that was absolutely appropriate for the style of music. And it, it brought new ideas to me for that music that I've played quite a lot too. It's funny, again, to, to know somebody just through a remote experience, because that was, again, all recorded at her place and then in my apartment in New York. And we've yet to play any music, even jam together in real life. So all of our collaboration has been um, through the computer. But we have hung out a few times and, and become friends as well through this experience. So, yeah, that's a that's a really new aspect to life that I was not expecting, especially because I'm a more, I think of myself as a more introverted person. So the idea of making a friend before ever even meeting them in person, I never would have imagined that years ago. There are a couple of your tunes on this recording. I think three of them, if I counted correctly. The opening piece, Jig and Pop. And then there's another piece that's kind of fun. It has a connection to Ravel's Violin Sonata Number no. 2. Can you talk about that piece? Yeah, that piece is called Le Soca. And I'm always just trying to find ways to plop a little fiddle tune in my classical concerts. So that piece came about because I was playing the Ravel Sonata during a concert, and I was just trying to figure out how to make a fiddle tune relevant to that program. And I was just listening to the opening line of the piano part in the Ravel Blues Sonata. And just um, reveling, no pun intended, reveling at how beautiful and stunning the writing is with Ravel. Just amazing in all its details. And it was just in my head all day long. And so I sat down to sort of come up with a fiddle tune that might fit with the program. And I just decided to tinker with that melody a little bit and see what would come if I 
added, you know, different rhythms and just twisted it around a little bit. And this tune came out, you know, in a few minutes. And um, it's a little trick that classical composers have used since the dawn of time, stealing folk melodies and putting them into their pieces. So it's basically the, the reverse process of that. And, and that's how it came to be. And I was playing at Soka University when I wrote it. So that's <laughs> the silly title comes from a little French lay in the front of that. It's those little pieces feel kind of like glue to put a lot of these different tracks together on the album. There is another piece that you wrote that has a silly title. In fact, you even say that, that it means nothing. Can you talk about that tune? <laughs> yeah, Husidalia, that's the one. Yeah, it just came, I was getting really excited um, listening to Vasen this group that just has such a unique sound and it was a their most recent duo record i guess and the the rhythms and the modalities in that music are so captivating and i was just excited to try and write my own kind of tune that sounded like that and the fun thing about writing and exploring that is that you you really come to understand the details and technicalities of what it is you really like about a music. And so it, it was just a lot of fun to sort of figure out like what ratios of rhythms are, are making me respond in that way. And, you know, what's the contour of the melodies that, that makes it feel really fun. And so I was just humming some stuff to myself on a subway and came up with this tune. And it's a silly scat thing that Michael Thurber, my fiance, and I do with, with a bunch of music. It's not your standard bee boop bee bop, but a lot of really weird syllables and consonants come out. And Husidalia was the one that came out of my mouth when I was sort of humming it along to myself and I just looked up the Scandinavian or whatever spelling of it and looks like a real word but I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> Eugenie Sai's Sonata for Solo Violin Number no. 5 in G Major appears on this recording and you've said that this sonata appeals to your Kentucky heart. Can you talk <laughs> more about that? How does it appeal to your Kentucky heart? Yeah, um, the last movement in particular, Dance Rustique. I mean, it says it all in the, the title there, just a rustic folksy dance. And the first movement is a beautiful aural depiction of a sunrise. And having grown up in the Kentucky Appalachian foothills, you know, that's a very distinct image to me. And 
course, that's not going to be the same as a Belgian <laughs> sunrise that Isai might have been seeing or who knows where he was in Spain on vacation or, or, or something. Certainly. Well, he could have been in Kentucky because he did conduct the Cincinnati Symphony for a little while. But um, just the, this homage to nature and to dancing in the countryside just really feels akin to my upbringing in music um, and in particular in that sonata number five of his six I think that's where he really gets the most folksy and, and joyous so I absolutely adore that sonata and I thought it would fit perfectly with the whole concept of the disc You close out the whole Stradgrass session recording with a meditation on my old Kentucky home, which certainly seems appropriate. It's by Stephen Foster. We get a new take on this, though, because pianist John Baptiste joins you. What was most memorable about recording with him? Everything about that experience was memorable. That was my uh, first and only time playing with him. Actually, we didn't rehearse beforehand, and I was fresh off of a chamber music tour with some musicians from Marlboro, so my head was in a very classical place. And I was, you know, turning out a program, the same program, you know, five times in a row, I believe. So I was a little worried that I would be able to inhabit the space that I wanted to be in, in terms of just sort of flying by the seat of our pants (laughs) for a performance like that or or more jazz style music and improvisatory music, because it felt quite contrasting to what I had just been doing. But the the moment John arrived to the, the studio and sat down at the piano, um, he just started playing some little noodles on the piano and it was in a certain key. And I just, you know, he, he knew the tune we were going to play. And I said, you want to just like, why don't we just start from what you're doing right now? And it was, um, I think, yeah, it's F major stuff so we just like there were no conversations it was just that I asked him if he was just up for going with what he was doing because it already sounded super beautiful and so we turned on the mics and we just played through a couple of times and all the takes sound wildly different from one another I think this might have been the fourth or fifth playthrough of ours um, which he in the previous take had finished with that motive that you hear at the start of this version. And I asked him, I said, I loved that sound. What do you think if we try one based off of that? And he said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. And so we just went with it and we got what you hear. It's all, you know, an unedited single take and um, very specific moment in time and it was such an intimate moment being we were facing one another um which is opposite of course of what you would get in a in a recital setting when we're both um you know kind of sideways to the audience but getting to have that contact and really just being completely 
present with what one another was giving was absolutely magical. And my eventual goal in that um, recording was to to let John, he has endless ideas, just never stops with musical ideas. And so I wanted to be more of the the placid melodic element and sort of let him color around that. And so we decided to call it a meditation. I mean, we just went in playing at my old Kentucky home, but what resulted really felt like a meditation practice and uh, sound as well. The Stradgrass Sessions with violinist Tessa Lark. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker.